This is KJZZ News, your listener-supported public radio station. I'm Tiara Vian, and here are this week's stories you don't want to miss. We say it every week, but thank you so much for listening. For the week of July 25th, 2022, here are some top stories. Maricopa County spent more than its fair share of 2021 in the spotlight. State Senate Republicans spearheaded a deeply flawed review of the county's 2020 vote, run by inexperienced election deniers. It's now nearly two years since Trump's 2020 loss in Arizona. And despite all the audits and bluster, this year's election isn't all that different. Ben Giles reports. Election denial runs rampant among Arizona Republicans, from the campaign trail to the halls of the state capitol, where lawmakers like Representative John Fillmore spent the last two years trying to upend the state's elections. Quite frankly, there are some people, and I will be the first to say, that is me, I am one that will say that I believe that in uh, in, uh, 2020 we had some serious concerns that were never really responded. I don't care what the press says. In January, Fillmore introduced one of the more controversial and consequential bills to transform Arizona's elections. Among other things, it would have required ballots in all future elections be counted by hand, required votes to be cast only on Election Day, and repealed laws providing universal access to early ballots in Arizona. That's music to the ears of former President Donald Trump, who visited Arizona last week to repeat his election lies. The election was rigged and stolen, and now our country is being systematically destroyed because of it. But for all the deniers in Arizona, there are still believers. Yeah, for all the noise that has been made regarding election administration, from the user's perspective, it's going to look very similar to the 2020 experience. Republican Stephen Richer was elected Maricopa County recorder during that allegedly rigged 2020 vote. He's quick to point out that the election review, for all its flaws, actually found nothing wrong with Maricopa County elections. I think that we've had more scrutiny over the Maricopa County elections process than any jurisdiction in the United States. And, uh, you know, that process has been found to not be fundamentally flawed. There are a few new wrinkles to the 2022 primary in Maricopa County. Most ballot drop boxes are gone. There's an expanded number of universal early voting centers, and fast-drying pens have replaced controversial Sharpies at polling places. But all that's discretionary, small changes that counties can make at the local level. Most of the election is dictated by state law, like how early ballots were mailed to a majority of Maricopa County voters at the beginning of July. If you want to vote by mail, you're still going to be getting a affidavit packet. You're going to be getting a ballot packet that's going to have a yellow envelope and you're going to take out your ballot. You're going to fill it out. You're going to put it in a green envelope. You're going to sign and seal that envelope and you're going to send it back. Extreme bills like the one Fillmore proposed may have attracted attention. But enough Republicans, like Richer and GOP County Supervisor Bill Gates, lobbied against those bills from becoming law. We are up against so many forces, so many leaders within the Republican Party here in Arizona and nationally who continue to spread this misinformation. But again, fortunately, we also have people who have stood up and supported our elections workers. Gates specifically credited House Speaker Rusty Bowers, who drew Trump's ire by rebuffing attempts to overturn the 2020 election. Bowers single-handedly torpedoed some far-reaching election bills like Fillmore's. I think that that demonstrates a recognition uh, that our system works, 
that all of this talk about problems in the system were political talk, but not reality. That reality is a testament to the work of officials like Ray Valenzuela and Scott Jarrett, the co-election directors in Maricopa County. Jarrett described the last two years as a trial by fire. Because of the last two years, I feel we're much better prepared than we were in 2020. Valenzuela says the duo now spends more time proactively spreading good information to fight back against the bad. On a personal level, it's, it's difficult because we want the voter to have the accurate and most, uh, uh, the best information possible to make their, not only their choice and participate in the process, but to know that, again, the elections are safe, secure, and they have integrity. Both believe that, with a successful 2022 election in tow, the county may be able to turn a corner heading into the 2024 presidential vote. Ben Giles, KJZZ News, Phoenix. In Fronteras News. In northern Arizona, flooding threatens about 500 homes, the result of a worst-case scenario where several burn scars in the Pine Tree Mountains are now exposed to a heavy monsoon year. From our Fronteras desk in Flagstaff, Michelle Marisco reports. People in Flagstaff's Dony Park have grown accustomed to the flooding. First, the pounding rains on the flanks of the mountains overlooking the town, then the warnings. If indoors, shelter in place. If outdoors, get to high ground and do not enter drainage. Then a tense quiet for more than an hour. And then the waters begin to surge again, driving mud onto properties and homes. Tony Park is a small community of about 6,000 people settled in the lowlands and foothills of old volcanic fields northeast of Flagstaff. Rains usually gather slowly in the San Francisco peaks, then wend their way down through channels and streams. Two wildfires last spring broke the community's peace with the mountains. Now floodwaters, rocks, and debris come down in torrents. It's overwhelmed previous flood mitigations that were put in more than a decade ago. Paul Fox stood outside a neighbor's home as the waters filled the culverts and began to flood the road Saturday afternoon. Well, we almost, our house almost flooded. We had a couple neighbors who actually, these guys, these guys, a handful of neighbors, grabbed some sandbags and, uh, you know, added a couple rows. So we we had three last time and it went over that. So Last week, 18 inches of water surged over many properties here. Could have been a lot worse. Yeah. The yeah. flooding has cut channels through the neighborhood. Stephanie Trepto warded away the first flood from her back porch with push brooms and sandbags. And it was just a slow moving thing and it really was flooding other parts of the yard, but we were able to keep it pretty much off the deck and everything and keep it at bay. Engineers contracted through Coconino County anticipated many of the areas where flooding would hit. Trepto's house wasn't one of them. Oh, you just realize, wow, we certainly weren't prepared. <laughs> and it did, it did spread. Like Fox and many other residents in the area, Trepto has a two-foot high wall of hundreds and hundreds of sandbags surrounding her home. It's become clear floodwaters will come down off the mountain and then hit homes from several directions. Flood control is a daunting task here. County officials are racing to add two-ton concrete barriers called Jersey barricades at the most vulnerable homes. National Guard soldiers, inmates in Winslow, firefighting crews, and masses of volunteers are filling sandbags. Nearly one million are needed. 
pickup trucks, trailers, tractors, and cars clean out pallets of sandbags almost as soon as they're dropped off. The pipeline fire charred areas that had burned a dozen years ago and then destroyed new segments of forest. This house got flooded on the interior. Lucinda Andriani is the county's flood control district administrator. She drives us through a subdivision at the base of the peak's eastern slopes. It was the first community to flood this, this year. Yeah, you can see they've cut out the, the drywall. Floods surged against the home, then through it. Culverts are overrun everywhere. Rail fences are collapsed under the weight of mud. Heavy equipment is pervasive, clearing out retention basins from fresh ash and mud before the next rain. Crews are also building new areas for the mud to spread out before it creates new torrents. The county is seeking additional federal funding to tackle the forest overgrowth before the next fire comes. Otherwise, we're going to do this exercise we're doing right now over and over and over again. As for Trepto, she is staying put. Um, no, uh-uh. I have no intention of selling. She's hoping the county's mitigation efforts will work. But then after that, I don't think it'll be like a continuous thing. I just don't think it will be. The forecast calls for high chances of rain and flash floods all this week. Michel Marisco, KJZZ News, Flagstaff. And this is the Stories You Don't Want to Miss podcast. Thanks for listening. In science news, one in three Native American elders will develop Alzheimer's disease or another form of dementia, according to the Alzheimer's Association. But accessing resources like a support group can be difficult for families, especially in tribal communities in rural parts of the state. As Kathy Ritchie reports, two Valley organizations are teaming up to support Native American caregivers and their loved ones through music. You know, music is a very, very interesting ordeal. You know, it, it can spawn memories. Can um, make people feel a certain way of maybe comforting their, their mind, body, you know, their spirit. Aaron White is a Diné and Northern Ute Grammy-nominated musician. He plays guitar on the song, Roadless Traveled. You know, it's, it's a song that I thought of and had the idea of, you know, there, there are those roads, you know, in life, you know, that we sometimes are forced to take because of maybe illness or, or something that happens. Like a dementia diagnosis. And that's where this story starts, with White's music and 11 other songs that appear on a new CD called Walk With Me. This was really a pandemic project. That's Heather Mulder. She's the Associate Director of Outreach Research at the Banner Alzheimer's Institute. She helped produce Walk With Me. When these communities shut down, we, like everybody else, had to figure out what do we do now? So through conversations with others about how music could help people living with the disease and their caregivers. We just started putting these different pieces together and said, well, what do you think? Could we do a CD? One of the people Mulder was talking to was Kathy Norris Wilhelm. Norris Wilhelm lost her wife, Jean, to early onset Alzheimer's disease last year. Well, Jean was amazing. Uh, she was a math teacher for nearly 20 years. Uh, we were together for 25 years. Uh, she was diagnosed at the age of 55 in 2016. 
Unfortunately, early onset is incredibly aggressive. So we were seeing a ra very rapid decline. As she progressed, we, we did start pursuing uh, the benefit of different classes and programs. Including music therapy. And that truly was a lifeline and a lifesaver for us personally. We had the capability of reaching those resources, and unfortunately, in the indigenous communities, they don't have that same benefit. Even before COVID, indigenous communities could be tough to reach. The internet can be hit or miss in more rural parts of the state, and dementia specialists, support groups, or other programs like the one Jean participated in can be hours away by car. But here's where serendipity comes in. Norris Wilhelm is a director of promotions at Canyon Records, an independent label that has been specializing in Native American music since 1951. So after talking to Mulder, she approached her boss, who said yes. But creating a CD specifically for Native American caregivers from across Arizona's 22 unique tribal communities would require more than just a collaboration between Canyon Records and the Banner Alzheimer's Institute. So it was really critical for us also to develop an advisory committee to involve indigenous community members. So as this, this concept was developing, we really wanted their input. Because some music, like those used in ceremonies, would be inappropriate to be used for a CD. They also wanted to make sure that each song worked as a tool to soothe, motivate, or modify unwanted behaviors. Here's Mulder again. So for example, physical activity. If you want someone up and moving, you need something that has a bit of a rhythm, a bit of a beat to it, has some energy to it. And so we actually selected a chicken scratch song that many communities in the Southwest are used to dancing to that type of music. Inside the CD, there are liner notes explaining why a song was chosen or when to use it. Mulder says Banner has also partnered with the Intertribal Council of Arizona to get the CD into the hands of caregivers. It's a role Norris Wilhelm will never forget, which is why this CD is part of her late wife's legacy, to help those walking the road less traveled. Kathy Ritchie, KJZZ News, Phoenix. In education news, the village auntie is helping Muslim communities talk about sex. Let's get some details on that story with Lauren Gilger. And a note here, this conversation might not be appropriate for everyone. When you think of a sex educator, you probably don't think of someone who looks like Angelica Lindsay Ali. I had a really interesting experience at Sky Harbor Airport one time mm -hmm. when I was going through to do a workshop at Princeton uh, with Muslim women. And I had a bunch of anatomical tools, we'll call them, in my <laughs> bag when I went through security. And the TSA agent, the look on his face when he was just looking through at all of these things in my bag, and he's like, ma'am, what do you do? I said, well, you could, you could consider me a sex expert. And here I am like in a black abaya, a black hijab, and his <laughs> face just turned beet red. And he just put everything back in the bag. He said, well, I'm sure you're probably very good at what you do. I said, yes, and you are too. <laughs> You see, Lindsay Ali is Muslim, and as she said, she's normally draped in a long abaya dress and a hijab covering her hair. 
She's funny and a commanding presence on stage or in a room. You might know her as the host of the Moss Story Slam here in Phoenix. And in the last few decades, she's built a career as what she has dubbed the village auntie, her online persona for her work as a sex educator, healer, and so much more. She has become known for her no-holds-barred approach to talking about sex, often in the context of her own religion, Islam. For me, it can be a way to express things that cannot be expressed vocally, um, things that cannot be expressed through prayer. Sex is an act of worship in Islam, and a lot of people don't know that and don't realize that. So just like I want to, to pray very well, I want to fast very well, I also want to experience sex at the highest level because I see it as an aspect of that lived experience as a spiritual being. And since the pandemic forced us all into an ever more online world, she has grown an international community of women who support each other in healing and learning about their own sexuality and sexual health. It's intergenerational, it's intercultural, it's interfaith, it's international, and it's it's been a great way to also break down a lot of the, the cultural stereotypes that we have about each other. I have a friend who's an ordained minister. She's one of my most loyal villagers. <laughs> and she always shouts out. She's like, listen, let me tell you, this is not just for people of a certain kind. This is for everyone. And I love that. <laughs> I love the way that it brings women together. But I began my conversation with Lindsay Ali at the beginning with her own journey into this role as the village auntie. And it turns out it began for her as a way to heal herself from a traumatic experience. So I first got started as a way to heal myself. Uh, I am a woman who is a was a victim of sexual assault. And that assault really led me to want to learn more about my body and the way that I could reconnect to it. So I started out in 1998. Uh, studying with West African women, learning about traditional African women's healing modalities through herbs, through movement, a lot of somatic therapy. They didn't call it that, but it was homegrown medicine, basically. Mm -hmm. And then when I moved to Phoenix in 2001, I was working as a school teacher uh, and wanted to branch out and work with adults more. And so I got a job working in public health for a nonprofit. And with this nonprofit, I was exposed to the world of STD prevention, HIV medical case management, and that gave me another layer of education that I could add to the already traditional knowledge that I had been building. And what I found was that a lot of the things that I was learning and a lot of the things that I was exposing women to, they were not they didn't know. Like there mm -hmm. were women who had had five or six children and they weren't clear about like what a woman's anatomy is and how it's made to function. And so I really just started out with educating my friends, educating people around me, talking to people in the community, and it just really branched out from there. Yeah, yeah. So your work as a sexual health educator goes far beyond your religion, goes far beyond your culture in that sense, right? But you did work in this world, in the Muslim world, when you were living in Saudi Arabia for some time, right? Can you tell us about that and how it contributed to your views on this? Sure. So, yeah, I am a practicing Muslim and I am educated in um, the religious rulings and sort of the jurisprudence around women's sexual health and reproductive health in general. And, I, you know, I converted to Islam. I converted to Islam at the age of 23. And when I was in Saudi Arabia, I was around a lot of American expats and expats from other parts of the Muslim world who were born and raised Muslim. So I just assumed that they knew all of the things that I knew. <laughs> but I was at a dinner party one night and I was talking to a friend who had just recently had a baby. 
And she was talking about like how her body feels differently. And, and I just started talking to her. So we're at this dinner party and we're just in a corner talking. And before I knew it, every woman in the room, it got really quiet. Every uh. woman in the room was like zeroed in on our conversation. <laughs> and they're like, oh my gosh, how do you know this? And I'm like, you don't? And, and I realized that, you know, I come from, my mother's a clinical psychologist. I come from a very sex positive home. There was no question that was off limits. And I realized that there were a lot of people who did not have that exposure where they may have had that religious grounding. There wasn't an understanding of how to apply that to the body. Hmm. So that really just started a watershed of women after that dinner party women were passing my phone number around. They would call me. My daughter started her period or my daughter's getting married mm -hmm. or I'm, you know, I'm pregnant or I'm having this marital issue. And I realized that there was a big need to talk about these things in a setting with a person who understood their religious and cultural references, uh, but who was also armed with the secular knowledge about the body and just ways to process different pathways of what it means to be a woman. I realized that there was a big need. And that's, that's how I really got started doing this on a, a larger scale. This is where the village auntie began, it sounds like, in that in that dinner party. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty much, yeah. That's where it began. So, I mean, I want to ask you about your your connection between spirituality and sexuality, which so often, not just in the Muslim faith, but I think in so many religions, it feels like it has to be separate. Tell us about how you've tried to break down that barrier. Yeah, you know, I think spirituality and sexuality are so interrelated. I think sexuality is an aspect of embodied spirituality. I grew up in the church. Uh, I have very, very close friends who are of the Jewish faith, of course, friends of the Muslim faith, friends from a variety of faith traditions. And one of the things that I found is that there is such a lack of understanding about the body and about sexuality that instead of exploring it, we just say, oh, it's off limits. It's bad. You shouldn't talk about it. But really, sexuality is like a piece of the garden on earth. It's a piece of paradise on earth. Hmm. So in your work in this, you have sort of created this community, this international community through the Villagianti, through social media, through all of the kind of platforms that you've created. Tell us a little bit about that growth and then how it sounds like the pandemic played a role in making this even, even bigger. You know, it's so strange because I'm generation X, right? So I grew up, beepers were a big thing. <laughs> like you get a, you get a, a page from a friend and you find a nearest pay phone because everyone didn't have cell phones, mm -hmm. but technology has made a lot of those uh, geographical barriers sort of melt away. And you're right. It, it really has expanded the work in, in a big way. I started doing this work in 1998, but it wasn't until 2018 that I actually got on social media with a Twitter account, a Facebook account, and an Instagram account. And I really just started it as a way of disseminating information. I was not going into this to try to build a community. Mm -hmm. I was going into this letting Muslim women, Christian women, uh, women who were afraid to ask questions, let them know that there is information out here. And what I found was that there were women who would DM me. Uh, there were women who would ask me questions. And so I would go live and I would answer questions. Yeah. Then COVID hit. I work in public health. I had to work from home. No one knew what was going on. So I said, let me go online. Mm -hmm. And I would go online. I would ask, answer questions. I would go live with people. We would have dance classes. We would <laughs> talk about different women's traditions from different communities around the world. And it just exploded. I started out with 1,500 Instagram followers in the fall of 2018. And right now we're around about 56,000. And the last time that we did a poll of like 
shout out where you're from, there were 86 countries that were represented. Hmm. Even though COVID was such a devastating tragedy globally, we lost so many people. It interrupted everything that we know about, about life. It really gave us a chance to slow down and build this community. And now that we are you know, entering different phases of the pandemic, I won't say that we're coming out of it completely. The community has emerged even stronger and larger than it ever was. I mean, yeah, that's amazing. Like, I, I, I think we've heard a lot of these sort of silver lining kind of pandemic stories at this point. But it sounds like this one was born out of necessity in a way, right? Um, yes. <laughs> it, it gave you the chance to connect with all these people. Give us a sense of how how this kind of education, how the community that comes with it has changed life for so many of these people. Do you have any stories that stand out in your mind? Yes, there have been women who I have talked through when they are in labor and they're going through birth and they're Mm -hmm. like, I can't do this. I'm a home birthing mother of four. So that's also another facet of the work that I do. Mm -hmm. I have matched a few couples (laughs) through through my work as well. It's not something that is a service that I offer regularly, but I have matched a few couples, one of which is expecting their first child and just any day now we're waiting on that call. So it really is, you know, people always say social media is not real, Mm -hmm. but it is real. I've developed real and lasting relationships, lasting friendships with the people that I've met online. And it's, it's a nurturing community that is extremely supportive. Yeah. Yeah. I wonder where you want to take it next. Like you've grown this massive community. You can really impact people. Um, What's the what's the goal here? Do you have plans on the horizon? Yes, uh, I am currently writing my second book, which will be part memoir, uh, part instructional manual for women to live their best lives. I want to have a brick and mortar uh, school for the Village Auntie Institute, where mm. women from all over the world can come. We are launching in January of 2023 a certification class where I can certify women to go into their respective communities and also do this work. Give us a sense, lastly. Um, uh, so you call it the Village Auntie, right? When you, you're doing everything from you know sex education to almost like group therapy, it sounds like to matchmaking, as you say, on accident, <laughs> maybe. I mean, what's the history that this is grounded in? Like, do you feel like you are carrying on a a long-lasting tradition? Absolutely. Absolutely. I've talked to women from literally all over the globe, and I've talked to them about the fact that the Village Auntie is less a brand, uh, and it's more so a a position in the community. We, We... so many of us had women in our neighborhoods, in our towns, in our village, in our city, our church, our mosque, our synagogue that we could go to to ask questions. Your auntie is like your mom, but she's a cool mom. She's a mom <laughs> that you can go to and like talk to th- talk about things that you can't talk about with your actual mom. And I wanted to reclaim that role because I saw so many women needing a place, just just a shoulder to lean on, someone. Yeah who would listen to them, someone who could give them information that they might be afraid of being judged. Your auntie doesn't judge you. She doesn't guilt you. She doesn't shame you. But she is armed with that motherly knowledge that we need. So I see myself continuing an age old tradition of being a village auntie. And I'm just using modern technology to do it. All right. That is Angelica Lindsay Ali, a.k.a. The Village Auntie, joining us to talk more about her work. Angelica, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you for telling us your story. Thank you for having me. And this is the Stories You Don't Want to Miss podcast. Now from KJZZ Original Productions. 
It's summer and time to get our tiny dance moves on. Here is a new Tiny Desert concert to help. Robbie Pfeffer, the charming mulleted frontman for the Phoenix band Playboy Man Baby, started making goofy videos during lockdown and Instagram responded. So did TikTok. Now Playboy Man Baby is set to headline their first Los Angeles show this weekend. Our co-host Mark Brody was lucky enough to spend some time with them earlier this year. Have you guys ever played in a parking lot before? Yeah, I'm Robbie. Um, I'm the singer, and I'm pretty dang sure we've played in a parking lot. We've played in almost any kind of like unconventional setting you could possibly play in, so parking lot's got to be on that list. Is that a conscious choice to play in different kinds of venues? Um, I don't know if you know about economics, but there's a thing called supply and demand, and uh, there's been various demand for a product called Playboy Man Baby, so sometimes that demand is only in basements or like abandoned buildings or whatnot, so uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's partially choice, partially circumstance. So let me ask you about this parking lot in particular. Obviously, this is a, a center that is well-known in the music and cultural scene for, for the city. Yeah. Any special meeting to, to play here? Oh, I've, I've seen strange things happen in this parking lot, and none of them are radio-friendly to talk about. So, but I really, I really enjoy this parking lot as a whole because it's kind of a vestige of, like, old Tempe. It's the kind of thing where I remember my English teacher grew up in Tempe, and she can talk about like, oh yeah, you know, Yucca Tap Room's been around since ye olden days. <laughs> have you found that you have written at all or thought about writing like anything related to your experience over the last couple of years, trying to navigate the world through this sort of new normal? Um, I don't know if I have, I don't know if we have like a COVID kind of album kind of deal. Um, but I think that the biggest thing is that this whole experience has really helped me realize how much I value being around people. I didn't really think of myself as a social person uh, until this all happened. And now I desperately miss live shows and being around people. And it just really kind of like, I feel like by the end of 2019, I was kind of bored of being around people and playing shows. And this just kind of like reignited that kind of passion for being around people. So that was pretty cool. Were you guys able to at least be together during during quarantine, during the at least the even during the early part of the pandemic, or were you trying to like do music through Zoom or something? Oh man, we were definitely apart for like a long time. Um, we took we took quarantine very seriously, and uh, we didn't get to practice or see each other for a while, and that was uh, honestly pretty depressing after doing doing this for such a long time to like lose out on kind of like this this little community that is our band you know it's our social group it's our bowling league it's what we do for fun so that was kind of fundamental and that really did suck but we did get to go to a couple cabin trips where we kind of like um got to write some songs and all that but definitely there was very depressing elements so like did you find that when you were able to all get back together and start playing again together and start doing shows again together was it like leaving picking right back up where you left off was there sort of like a newfound appreciation of being able to do this thing that you all love that led to you guys doing anything differently i feel like we kind of came into it kind of like uh shaquille o'neal on the off season where we were definitely like eating cheeseburgers and we were like out of shape because in 2019 we toured the most we ever had we probably played more than 100 shows that year so just expecting to go back into it and be like all right we're ready to do this but then we had to get ready for like the biggest show we'd ever played so it was this really kind of like uh zero to 60 preparation thing for us and that you know 
I think we all like puzzles, and that was a fun puzzle. All right. So can you guys play a song for us? Yeah, yeah, we're definitely going to play a song. This is called uh, The Feeling I Get When Petting a Dog, and it is arguably the happiest song we've ever written, which is not on our brand. So, Robbie, I've got to ask you about this, and I hope you take this in the spirit in which it's intended. 
we only just met, but you strike me as somebody who's kind of like a silly, goofy kind of personality. Like, how I'm does... I'm deeply offended. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm <laughs> totally <laughs> sorry. Um, like, how does that sort of manifest itself in, in your writing? I mean, you can see you... We can see you sort of bopping around when you're singing, but in the writing process and sort of the behind-the-scenes process, how does that manifest itself? Uh, I think, I think, I think uh, we're all very goofy people inherently, and we all really sign up for that sort of thing. Like, if you watch the videos... Um, like the the like music videos, not the like TikTok videos. You see, it's like all of us call like pretty hard committing into like pretty fun goofy roles. But I think that's always what I've liked in music, and I feel like that none of us are really that kind of like velvet underground cool guy sunglasses kind of thing. We're all just like we're all just weird nerds, and we really like embrace that. Uh, wholeheartedly because that's really who we are and you know I think that uh, that comes off as hashtag branding authentic I've got to say you talked about not being cool guys in sunglasses but two of the three of you are in fact wearing sunglasses right now I'd just like to point that out for the record <laughs> that's uh that's borderline medical in the just like we don't do well in the sun so a prescription yeah yeah <laughs> so what's next for you guys um, I mean, I really think that the the ideal thing would be to, you know, now be able to operate as a full band, to be able to play shows, to be able to tour, to be able to put out new records, just kind of get back in the swing of being a band, but also incorporate this kind of new, weird internet world that we've now found ourselves in, which has, you know, opened us up to a bunch of people who we wouldn't have normally been in front of. You know, we always kind of thought of ourselves as a niche within a niche. And it turns out there's a whole bunch of other people who like this uh, hashtag authentic weird, you know, personality that we put out into the world. So do you anticipate doing more online stuff in addition to working back toward the live stuff? Absolutely. Yeah, 100 percent. Yeah. And then just kind of incorporating multimedia elements into the shows, having more video in the live show and just kind of. It's always been a theatrical project, but I think now we have the opportunity to expand that and that's going to be really fun to do. Did you have to learn any new skills? Like were you instead of like baking sourdough over the last couple of years learning how to do like video editing something like that? Um, I got really lucky in the fact that I was in like a high school AV club, which is where all the cool kids were. Um, and I got to learn how to edit video when I was a really like uh, a small child. And like I kind of got to like redo that in this kind of like video editing kind of thing. So I'm very reluctant to learn anything new. I'm very stuck <laughs> in my ways. So, But I'm glad to utilize all of these like old tricks that I've got. So can you guys play a song out for us? Yeah, this next one is called uh, Car on Fire, about that peaceful feeling you get when you're sitting in traffic. And finally, in business news. As part of a new series called The Exit Interview, let's hear why comedian Michael Turner left Phoenix for Los Angeles. Here's Lauren Gilger again. Phoenix is a bit of an enigma. On one hand, there is a lot of griping about this place where we all live. Call it Phoenix or the Valley or the Phoenix metro area. It's a mecca of sprawling suburbs, strip malls and chain restaurants. It's too hot to survive in the summer and full of retirees in the winter. It's devoid of original culture or art. And no one here supports the arts anyway. If you want to make something of yourself, you'd better get out of Phoenix. And did we mention the heat? 
These are things you've probably heard someone say or said yourself about Phoenix. And sure, there's some truth there, but we think Phoenix has an inferiority complex. It's a beautiful place to live. It's easy. It's still pretty cheap. It's full of culture and history and tradition. You just have to know where to look. And most of all, Phoenix is full of potential. Inferiority complex is right. That's a phrase that longtime Phoenix writer and now our executive producer here on the show, Amy Silverman, used more than 15 years ago in an extensive piece for Phoenix New Times. And I haven't been able to stop thinking about it since. As I've watched friend after friend after friend leave for greener pastures, bigger cities with more opportunities, more culture, more of a scene— As I felt the call to leave myself, to go to New York or L.A. or D.C., to go to the big time, to get out of this place that never quite seems to live up to its potential. So I invited Amy to the mic today to help me introduce a new series here on the show that will dive into all of this. We're calling it Exit Interview. Hi, Amy. Hey, Lauren. Okay, so this will be a series of conversations with people who have left Phoenix about why and about, you know, what it is about Phoenix that makes people seem to want to leave. <laughs> is this a pattern you've really seen a lot over the years? Oh, so much. <laughs> to the point where when I meet someone new, I say, oh, it's nice to meet you, but you won't stick around long. <laughs> okay, so I want you to take us back to that piece you wrote for New Times back in, this was 2005, to this idea of Phoenix having an inferiority complex, which I think fits it so well. Where did that idea come from? Somebody else had used the term kind of in passing in a conversation about about something unrelated, and I latched onto it because it so reminded me of my experience with Phoenix, or as I concluded that essay, uh, perhaps it's just me and I have an inferiority complex. (laughs) So this idea, though, that we don't live up to our potential, that people leave for a reason, where do you think this comes from? I have wondered that so much. I don't know because one of the things I love about Phoenix so much and and one of the things that I've made peace with and and I I do know other people, other natives, people who've lived here a long time who've gone through sort of the I don't know the the different levels of of grief of living in Phoenix <laughs> and and come out on the other side and and love it. The stakes are really low in Phoenix, hmm. you know. It's it's a place that to a lot of people doesn't really matter. But it's also a place where a young person or even a not-so-young person can make their mark. And for me, uh, that was one of the draws as compared with living in New York. I had been living in New York, and there were literally many, many other people named Amy Silverman who (laughs) wanted wanted to or were doing exactly the same thing I was doing or trying to do in New York. And I thought, well, this is ridiculous, and I don't know this place. I know Phoenix, Hmm. so I'm going to go back. I'm going to go back there and cover it. I I don't know what it is that keeps people from loving this place. So that's what we're going to dive into here. Amy Silverman, thank you. Thank you, Lauren. So now for our first exit interview. For Michael Turner, ending up in Phoenix was sort of a last resort when he was 18 and looking to get out of his hometown of Cincinnati, Ohio. I was applying all over and I thought, oh, why don't I apply to... Arizona State. And um, as you know, uh, I think for the past 20 something years, they've been just accepting anybody because I definitely didn't have the best, the best grades. I didn't even get accepted into like most like Ohio State didn't accept me. I would try to get into OU. I could have gone to Cincinnati. And I was like, you know what, I would love to just get out of here. 
I think I was lucky to have a perspective on the fact that I, th- I thought if I stayed in Cincinnati, I would never leave. So he went to ASU and got a degree in communications, which he says he's using today in a roundabout way as a stand-up comedian. It's a career he sort of stumbled into after, of all things, his best friend's death in the Iraq war. We were all super close, and I remember hitting up his family. It was like an instinctual reaction, and I hit up his brother that I knew real well and said, I'd love to speak at the funeral. And um, I ended up speaking on his behalf, uh, Brandon Honor, may he rest in peace. And um, I'll never forget uh, the feeling of speaking in front of a huge audience like that and having real control of it. And it it really meaning a lot to people. And I remember looking over to my right and I had the preacher was crying at one point and laughing at another <laughs> point and really knowing that my words had an impact and moved people and the feedback that I had from close friends and even people I'd never met in my life that said that, you know, the way I connected really meant something to them that day. And mm. it was at that point that I realized like, I got to do something with communicating in a mass, a massive way or in front of Uh, audiences. And I didn't know how that would look. Um, I remember thinking I would be like a motivational speaker or something like that, like Tony Robbins. (laughs) That's, that's not who I am (laughs) at all. Even though I do love a good Tony Robbins speech. I was also like high school, like most likely to be on SNL vote, like all the superlatives, like (laughs) uh, class clowns, so to speak. You know, I was always that guy too. Mm -hmm. And it ended up, it didn't happen immediately, but years later, 2012, I finally said, I'm going to get up on stage and and start stand-up. As an up-and-coming comic in Phoenix at the time, Turner told me it was a great city to be in, big enough to have some good clubs to play, but small enough to let an unknown kid cut his chops. So you're new to the stand-up scene. You're in Phoenix, um, 2012. What was it like? Was it welcoming? Was there a lot of opportunity for someone in that position at the time? I was fortunate, knowing what I know now about the scene before I started, at that point, the scene had grown into a, a city that had like, you could get up on stage like almost every night. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's a rarity. You know, if you're not living in New York, LA, Chicago or something, it's it's not a lot of scenes that you can really get good stage time right. um, almost every night. So I was really fortunate. Yeah, I had a lot of, a lot of good opportunities. Sometimes you just know early on if somebody's kind of good at it. Mm-hmm. And I was also pretty self-aware if I was... If I was bad, I think I would have known, but I didn't. I was like, oh, I'm, this isn't going bad. Um, (laughs) And so the scene was supportive in that way. I think they knew like, oh, this kid could be all right. And a lot of people gave me stage time and it was good. Yeah, it was, it was um, a scene that uh, gave me a lot of, a lot of love early on. He got better fast, playing bigger stages, earning a pretty decent following. He even started producing his own shows, one of them a so-called fake news comedy show called This Week Sucks Tonight that he produced with fellow Phoenix comedian Anwar Newton became something of a runaway hit. It was a late night show at 11 o'clock on Thursdays every week. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it was packed every <laughs> week. I'd say within the first like three to four or five months, it was it. Was it. And uh, Trump had just gotten into office. So like we had a lot of fodder to talk about politically and like things like that. And um, it turned into, yeah, something that, something that got a lot of buzz and was filling up the front room of the Crescent Ballroom every Thursday night. The success of This Week Sucks Tonight kicked his career into overdrive. He and Newton started taking the show around the country, where sold-out crowds in New York and L.A. cheered them on, and the national comedy world took notice. But here in Phoenix, he said, things stalled. 
people from everywhere else would come into this market and they would do this week's X and night. Mm -hmm. And these are people that are great, amazing comics. Like, you know, we would have a Ty Rivera, we would have Marcella Arguello. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we had so many, so many great standups come through. People like Maz Jabroni would see this week's X tonight. And Jeff Ross sat in one time and like Nate Bargatze watched it, you know, like huge yeah. names. And yeah. they're like, this is crazy. <laughs> this is a, what are you what are you guys doing? This is so fun and nuts. And you guys are awesome. And I'm sitting there like, why don't you tell anybody in this city? Phoenix didn't show up for them the way other towns did. They hit a ceiling here and a pretty low one at that. Why are you doing this in Phoenix is a question he got used to hearing so much so that finally he left. That's right. Like everyone else we'll talk to in this series, Michael Turner gave up on Phoenix, where he had invested years trying to build a comedy scene. Now he lives in Los Angeles, where he's seeing even greater success. His thesis on the Valley of the Sun is pretty simple. Phoenix doesn't deserve nice things. Nice things he told me he tried his hardest to create here. Here's our conversation. Was there a point at which it felt like you couldn't grow it any further? There were no more places for you to go in this city? What eventually drove you out? Yeah, I travel a lot around the country and there's different markets. Like I referred to like L.A. and New York earlier being the big markets. But yeah. like I've gone to Denver and like right now there's something going on in Austin, Texas that is like taking over. It's a huge market now. Um, San Francisco, <laughs> stuff like that. I've gone to all these cities and seen these peers of mine that are not, you know, any different than me and Anwar were in their ability to do, to produce shows and do cool stuff and make people laugh. And I was sitting there seeing what they've been able to create in these other cities. Like Denver is a perfect example of uh, Ben Roy and Andrew Orbital and Andrew Caton Holland, along with a lot of other people have created an amazing scene there, but they really spearheaded a lot of cool stuff there. Mm -hmm. And I was inspired to do that in Phoenix. I wanted to do that. And I saw, I was like, well, we're already doing these cool shows. Like, why don't we just, continue to grow and build these things. And with that, other people will see it and create other different shows and they can compete with us. And right. that will create a whole scene and all that stuff. And this week sucks tonight was so popular that we ended up moving it from Crescent Ballroom, where it was a great starting point. And then Stand Up Live, obviously the you know largest comedy venue in the city, wanted us to bring it there on a weekly basis. And we tried our damnedest to mm -hmm. make that the big, in my mind, I was like, this is going to be huge. There's a thing in LA called Kill Tony. And now it's in Austin. That's like, it sells out every week. And it's, it's made for that. I'm like, we could be that, you know, yeah. let's, let's grow this thing and, and do that right here in Phoenix. And we marketed it. We jumped on radio stations. We tried to tell everybody we screamed it from all the mountaintops. Mm -hmm. And um, we just hit, you know, we'd never get over like, a hundred people there. And mm. also we appreciate every single one of those hundred people that came, Yeah, but it wasn't, uh, it wasn't growing the way that we needed it to grow just monetarily, right. To be able to not only make us money, but make the business money, like yeah. make stand up live money too. And the crazy part of the perspective was that we would travel. Like I said, we would take it to festivals. We took it to New York city and we sold out a, a venue in uh, New York city, having never lived in New York city. Huh. We started taking it to Los Angeles in the comedy store and we would nearly sell out if not selling out in the belly room um, having never lived in LA mm. and we would take it to North Carolina and Memphis and we took it all over. We took it to Denver. Denver <laughs> invited us to do it. Right. And the feedback was always from our peers, from people that had never seen it. They're like, what the hell is this show? 
This show needs to blow up. This should be on TV. This should be somewhere else. And this should be the biggest thing in the world. Yeah. And then we go back to Phoenix and we're scrapping for people to care about it. Man. And it's like maddening. That's so maddening. Phoenix, right? <laughs> oh, my God. It's like I say, I always think this is my big perspective on Phoenix is they just they don't deserve nice things because <laughs> I gave them nice things. Uh it's it's just like if you put so much love into something and try to do it and then you don't get that back it's mm -hmm. like am I, this this is an abusive relationship yeah this is like <laughs> this is like <laughs> i'm being emotionally abused this is like uh, sharon stone and jimmy woods in casino you know <laughs> and i'm sharon stone in this you're sharon stone <laughs> so so i mean what is it like what's what's wrong with phoenix like i relate to that Totally. I've heard that story from a lot of people in different ways, right? In different genres and different things they're trying to do. And why is it? What do you think? I think that I commented earlier that I'm from the Midwest, right? I mm -hmm. came to Arizona from the Midwest. The majority of people in Phoenix aren't from Phoenix. And therefore, they don't care about things that are created within Phoenix. Yeah. They would much rather hold out hope that the show that they love that started in New York or Chicago comes to visit Phoenix. Right. And then they'll show that the support that they've never shown anything um, <laughs> in that city. So I think it's that. I think that nobody has roots there. In Phoenix, it's not cool to say you're from Phoenix. Like, I'm guilty of that too. Anybody that told me that they were born and raised in Phoenix and then they're in their 30s, I'm like, what are you doing here? Steve? You should leave. <laughs> I don't trust you at all. So the difference is so stark. It's true. So tell us about your perspective on all of this now that you're in L.A. You're doing you're doing really well there. Right. Which is sort of ironic considering the massive competition probably in the comedy scene there. But it's something that you couldn't get here. Right. So like when I moved to L.A. initially, I moved at the beginning of 2020. So crazy, horrible timing considering the next couple of years, right? Yeah. But we moved there having ran out of gas at our show in Phoenix and at Stand Up Live. And I never forget me and Anwar being like, let's get the heck out of here and move the show. We already had it at the Comedy Store on a monthly basis. Comedy Store is like the mecca of all comedy, arguably in the whole world, but yeah. definitely like in California and the West Coast. So it was amazing to do that. And then the whole world changed. But we've come back and we haven't been able to bring it back full steam, but we have been able to put it on multiple times. And it's crazy. Now I walk around town and in Los Angeles, I'm still introducing myself because I'm still kind of the new kid in town. Mm -hmm. And people will say, oh, I heard about your show. Yeah. I heard about your show. And it's like, oh, so it's already getting appreciated here <laughs> more than it ever has in in Phoenix. And I've only been here a little bit. And mm -hmm. people are like, yeah, heard is great, blah, blah, blah. There's eyes on it that I would have never uh, been able to get in Phoenix. So it's been it's been good, you know, and the, the city can be hot and cold at times, but um, momentum is real and, and word of mouth is still a very real thing. So that's been been great. Yeah. All right. Maybe we don't deserve nice things. Michael Turner, thank you so much for coming on. We really appreciate it. Thanks for your perspective on this. Thank you so much. And this has been the Stories You Don't Want to Miss podcast, made possible in part by Helios Education Foundation and Alliance Bank, the Vitalist Health Foundation, the Intel Corporation and Beach Fleischman, the Arizona Community Foundation, and the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Thank you for listening to KJZZ and for your generous support. I'm Tiara Vian, and this is KJZZ, your news and information station.